Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew 5, verse 1, 2, and 9. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. You may be seated. And as you're being seated together, let's just pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning that you are already at work by your Holy Spirit. Uh, This week, you have already been working in the hearts of your people. And we know this, uh, not just through big, exciting announcements about buildings, but we know this as we see people turn from sin and believe in you. Uh, We know this as we see brokenness uh, restored in you uh, to wholeness. Dying lives to flourishing lives in Christ. Lord, we ask that you would continue that work this morning by your spirit. As we gather now, would you speak to us through your word? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this past week, I was talking with uh, some other people, and I said we could title the sermon, uh, Jesus Strikes Again. It's not titled that. You're like, that sounds terrible. Uh, It's not titled that, uh, but but we could. Uh, In giving us these beatitudes, these, these flourishing statements... Uh, Jesus is sort of laying out at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount uh, sort of the big pillars, if you will, of his ministry. The big ideas that he wants to communicate to us. And if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, we believe this to be true, then not only should these big ideas come to us and challenge us, but these big ideas should sort of intersect with the big questions of life. What does the Son of God have to say about the big questions of these lives that we're living? This morning, Jesus is not shying away from another big topic. In fact, he's going headlong into another big topic. He's talking this morning about peace. Peace. We heard that read. Blessed are the peacemakers. Now, because this topic is so big and the implications of Jesus' teaching so profound, I'm just going to skip an introduction this morning. I hope you're okay with that. And just let's just start seeing what our seventh beatitude means for us uh, in this series. Here's what I want us to do. We're going to ask three questions this morning of this beatitude. Three questions of the beatitude. First is this. Why do we need peacemakers? Why do we need peacemakers? The second is, what do peacemakers actually do? What do peacemakers do? And then thirdly and finally, how do peacemakers do it? So why do we need them? Uh, What do they do? And and how do they actually go about uh, doing that? So Bible's open. Matthew 5, verse 9. Let's read that together. Let me encourage you, if you don't have a Bible at all, we have Bibles at the back for you. You can take those, keep those. That's our gift uh, to you. Matthew 5, verse 9. It'll be on the screen behind me. If you don't have a Bible or pull it up on your phone, it says this. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, before we see why it is the peacemakers and the peacemakers alone who shall be called sons of God, before we see why this is part of the flourishing life in Jesus, uh, there is one foundational question that we have to ask. Why do we need peacemakers in the first place? Why do we need peacemakers in the first place? And one obvious answer, the one that you're thinking of right now, I know it, I can read your minds, is because conflict exists, right? That's an obvious answer because conflict exists. I don't need to sell you this morning on the reality of conflict. I don't have to do that. 
A conflict exists between countries who bomb and invade one another. Conflict exists between companies who steal trade secrets and employees from one another. And the conflict exists between ethnicities who try to wipe out one another. A conflict exists between family who refuse to eat dinner at the same table with one another. And conflict even exists internally as we wrestle over certain ideas, convictions, or or discouraging thoughts. There is literally not a single part of our life in any sphere that is not touched in some way, in some shape, by conflict. By conflict. And I think it's important that we begin by acknowledging that this morning. See, for some of us, we hear this beatitude read, and immediately our mind goes somewhere. And where does it go? Uh, To blue-helmeted UN soldiers, like standing guard over a village, right? We go global with this idea. Or we think of two diplomats sitting at a table together, you know, shaking hands, agreeing on the terms of a ceasefire. We go global uh, immediately. Now, to be clear, I think Jesus, we'll see this, is touching on this global idea of, of peacemaking, what it means to be peacemakers in these big sort of national ways. But, but please, let's not immediately depersonalize peace this morning. Let's not make it just an out there, those people, news kind of problem. Some of you drove here this morning uh, in silence. In silence. Your spouse is in the car with you. Your kids are in the car with you. And you just finished a big fight. And, and by the grace of God, like you're barely here. You're barely here this morning. I see some of you even smirking. Others of you woke up with a friend on your mind that you haven't talked with in like years. Years. And it burdens you. Still, there are many this morning who are fighting, and perhaps you feel like you're losing an internal war against uh, depression, anxiety, overwhelming fear. Let's remember that the peace Jesus is talking about this morning is also meant to be good news in these very local, very personal, very here and now, us kind of places. And to see how the peacemaking Jesus is talking about is both global and local, national and personal, we have to go one step deeper. Why does peacemaking exist? Because conflict does. Well, why does conflict exist? Why is conflict a reality? And what I want to do, if you have your Bible, to answer this question of why does conflict exist is go to Genesis 3 together. In Genesis 3, we find something theologians and Bible teachers call the fall. The fall. The overwhelming teaching of the beginning of Genesis 1 and 2 is that God created everything, and in God's good creation, uh, it was perfect. There was this idea of peace, shalom, to borrow language from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. There was wholeness in God's good creation in the very beginning. We see this wholeness in every sphere. God rightly relates to his people, humanity. And God rightly relates to his creation, the animals, uh, the created land. Humanity rightly relates one to another. There's no bickering or, or infighting. Humanity even relates well to the other creation and to the animals and to the land. But then we come to Genesis chapter 3. And Genesis chapter 3, if understood rightly, understood properly, is probably the most discouraging chapter in all the Bible. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. In Genesis 3, we read of Adam and Eve and their desire to be little gods, to be like God, the text says, 
And in doing so, they rebel against God. They eat of the tree of the fruit of knowledge, uh, sorry, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God has forbidden them to eat from. They rebel. And immediately, one of the consequences we see as a result of this rebellion is conflict. Conflict. Like immediately there is, there is conflict. Not wholeness, but brokenness. Every sphere of every relationship is changed. And what I want to do is I'm going to read for a while in Genesis 3. Read for a while in Genesis 3. And I want you, the reader, to follow along with me and see if you can pick up on the different spheres of relationships that are now broken because of the entrance of sin into the world. So if you have your Bibles, Genesis 3, 6 to 7, it says this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. In verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Let's stop there. Do you see conflict? It's between Adam and Eve, right? The eyes of Adam and Eve were opened. They notice, oh, we're, we're naked, right? This is problematic. And they feel what? The shame. Shame. This perfect relationship where they love and serve one another well. And sacrificially and joyfully served one another is now marked by shame. And how many times has conflict come in our lives because of shame we're feeling? Insecurity we're feeling. In the fall, we see cracks begin to form in our relationship with one another. And shame comes in. We've got to keep on going. Genesis 3, 8 to 11 says this. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the, in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And we stop again. Here is conflict, right? Conflict. Conflict. Conflict beginning with rebellion between humanity and God. God does not ask, where are you? Because Adam is very good at hide and seek. Like, that's not what's happening here. Like, Adam found, like, a secret spot in the garden. But the question, where are you, signifies a change in relationship. See, God has never had to ask Adam before, where are you? He's never had to ask him that before. He was always with him. He always knew him. There was just no, there's no question of, of, of where are you? In the beginning, cracks begin to form now in God's relationship with, with humanity. Well, the conflict keeps coming. Let's pick up the pace. Again, we see Adam and Eve add conflict with one another. Genesis 12 to 13. Think for a second. Maybe you can relate to this conversation that's about to happen. Genesis 3 verses 12 to 13 says this. The man said, right... The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is, that, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now maybe you're getting flashbacks right now to that argument you had on the way here this morning. Right? Lord, the man you gave me, right? If he wasn't so slow. Or Lord, the woman you gave me, if she wasn't so slow, 
right? You're getting flashbacks to this morning. Genesis 3 goes on in detail. We could spend literally all morning here, but I can tell you don't want to do that. Genesis 3 goes on in detail to describe every sphere of relationship being marked by conflict. We'll see later that even our relationship to the ground will, will be marked by sweat and toil. And it will be because of hard labor that we can actually reap a harvest. The ground is cursed. Even further down, we see at the end of this chapter that animals are killed. Animals are killed in order for Adam and Eve to be clothed. Again, we have this broken, conflicted relationship. Genesis 3 ends with angelic creatures standing at the entrance to this garden paradise, this garden temple, with flaming swords. Like, how's that for conflict, right? Genesis 4 begins with, with, with a murder, Here's what I'm getting at, Christ City. Here's what I'm aiming for. Any talk of peace this morning, without acknowledging conflict's origin and sustaining power in our sin, foundationally in our rebellion against God, misses the mark, is incomplete, is nice talk and fancy language, but doesn't deal with the root problem. It's like putting a a new uh, sort of, you know, coat of paint on my old PT Cruiser, right? It's still a PT Cruiser. It's still a terrible car, right? It's like putting a a Band-Aid on on a cancer patient. Like, now you're healed. Here you go. It doesn't deal with the heart issue. See, in our modern quest for peace in Vancouver, we have looked to certain messiahs, certain things and people in order to deliver for us peace. Let me name just a few of them. These are some few uh, really popular ones. We have in Vancouver uh, the mystical Messiah. And the mystical Messiah says that we are one spiritual insight away from peace. One vision, one inner feeling away from peace. We have the technological Messiah. I met with a guy a few weeks ago who works uh, in tech in the city. And I asked him, like, what's your hope? What's your hope? Well, that we can just solve this ourselves. That we can find an app, make one sort of innovation, and we can solve all these problems ourselves. The technological Messiah says that we're one innovation away from peace. We have the political Messiah, right? We just had an election. Maybe you felt this as you went to the polls. We're one politician, one good political party away from peace. We have the environmental Messiah. We're one electric car, one recycling bin away from peace. Now, by themselves, these are band-aids. And the Bible is very clear about that. These are band-aids, superficial treatments that fail to penetrate to the heart of the problem. We could quote the prophet Jeremiah concerning these modern messiahs. Jeremiah, critiquing the prophets of his age, says this, They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Jesus, the Bible, they both point to a more foundational problem. When it comes to the problem of peace, the old adage rings true. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Now, I can hear and and sense the pushback, right? This is not to say that we do not concern ourselves with innovation or politics or caring for creation. 
only, only to say that if we believe conflict starts in the heart for true peacemaking to occur, for true peacemaking to happen at like its deepest, most foundational level, something has to change in the heart. In the heart. A local pastor, teacher, Daryl Johnson, he says it well. From the perspective of the Bible, silencing the guns does not mean peace has come. By the Bible standard, feeling good inside does not necessarily mean peace has come. Peace reigns, Johnson says, when the causes of strife are healed. The causes of strife are healed. Johnson continues in his commentary on the Beatitudes to exclaim that there's been tremendous dignity bestowed on humanity by this Beatitude. And we'll look at that in a bit. But somehow, some way, Jesus is talking about us being part of bringing true peace uh, to what truly ails all of creation. Now, this sounds great in theory, but what does that mean? Second question. Second question. What do peacemakers do? What do they do? Let me say four things. Four things about what peacemakers do. First thing is this. Peacemakers, foundationally, basically, they have to get messy. Peacemakers get messy. They get messy. Uh, Scott McKnight, another commentator, he defines peacemaking this way. He says this. Peacemaking is neither being nice, as defined today, nor is it tolerance, again, as defined today. Rather, and look at this, it is an active entrance into the middle of warring parties for the purpose of creating reconciliation and peace. It is the active entrance into the middle of warring parties for the purpose of creating reconciliation and peace, McKnight says. And I think one of the biggest misconceptions I know I had about peacemaking is that peacemakers are essentially, like we won't say it out loud, but we really believe this in our hearts, they're doormats, right? They're doormats. Oh, peace, peace, peace. You're pushover, right? In the Bible, that's not peacemaking. That's appeasement. That's peace-pleasing. See, there's a place, we'll see in a moment, for not being unnecessarily confrontational, for not being unnecessarily divisive. But with Jesus' emphasis in our beatitude this morning on peacemaking, peacemaking, there is an inherent challenge to us. He's challenging us. Jesus does not say, blessed are the peace-seeking. He doesn't say that. Jesus does not say, blessed are the peace Loving, Though he could have said both of those things. Instead, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemaking. And the number one thing peacemakers need to know is that when you step between two warring parties, maybe you know this and you're smiling, things will get messy. This past week I was at the Canucks game. And I'll confess to you, I'm not a Canucks fan, go Leafs go. Um, I just lost half of you. I'll confess to you, one of the reasons I love going to hockey games uh, is not really for the hockey, but to see, hopefully, two people fight. And it seems more dignified that way instead of going to, like, a, a boxing match or a UFC fight. Like, it seems more dignified. But, oh, I'm here for the hockey, but, like, secretly here for the fight. And I went for a fight. There was no fight. I was disappointed. But one of the things you'll see in hockey is when, when two guys are fighting, occasionally the ref will stand in the middle of them, try to, like, separate them. And, and you'll see this. It's, all, it's pretty hilarious. Sometimes the ref gets hit in the face, Right? Sometimes the ref catches a punch. Or sometimes the ref comes to the ground with them. Like, that's the picture of peacemaking we should have in mind here. One, that steps between two big warring parties, right? And sometimes gets hit. Sometimes catches a punch. Gets taken down 
with those warring parties. If we want to keep our hands clean, metaphorically and literally, we will never be peacemakers. And that's just a fact. If we want to keep our hands clean, we will never be peacemakers. Peacemaking is costly. Peacemaking is messy. And one of the lies of our Western individualist culture that we have been fed, one that conveniently helps us in keeping our hands clean, it goes, it goes so simply like this. Well, like it's none of my business. It's none of my business. Like so Judy and Greg are having a hard time. It's, it's really none of my business. So there's some infighting in the church. Like it's really none of my business. We are so hyper-individualistic that we don't think peacemaking is an option because we struggle to discern where exactly we are called to make peace. We're so afraid to offend people. I think one of the reasons, and this isn't in my notes, that the church has failed to be the church in this Western individualist culture is that we fail to call one another to account. We fail, not because we're nosy, not because we want to get like the gossip juicy details, but we, we just fail to be peacemakers with one another. We, we fail to get into each other's lives and, and, and we're afraid to get hurt or we're afraid to offend or, or I don't know why. Telling someone that you'll pray for their dispute with another church member uh, and not doing anything is thinking of peace. Thinking of peace. It's not making peace. Leaving a church. Leaving a church because someone said something that offended you and you couldn't believe they would say that. And not making it right is avoiding peace. It's not making peace. Allowing one friend to speak poison about another friend while you remain silent is maybe hoping for peace. It's not making peace. Peacemaking is messy. It is time-consuming. And it is commanded of us. This sort of peacemaking, if it's going to be this hard, cannot be just motivated by a desire to fix things. Right? I'm a fixer. Maybe you can join me in this. I'm a fixer. I want to fix things. But it has to be motivated by something deeper. It has to be motivated, we'll see in a second here, by love. By love. Second thing is this. Peacemakers are motivated by love. Remember, This seventh beatitude we we look at this morning is building on the six others that have come before it. And right before this beatitude, we read last week this. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are those whose hearts are singularly desiring, singularly longing, loving God and his kingdom. See this, Christ City. The peacemaker Jesus is referring to is motivated by, spurred on by, encouraged by a desire, a love to see God's kingdom come in all its fullness and flourishingness. It has to come from that place, that desire, that that love. Pure in heart, the follower of Jesus can't help but be a peacemaker. Can't help but desire this peace be made known in our world, in our time. We've seen this in history. Some of the greatest peacemakers to ever walk this earth were motivated by, were gripped by, a desire and love for Jesus and his kingdom. Uh, William Wilberforce, maybe you know the name, worked tirelessly to abolish the slave trade in the UK, 
gripped by the love of God in Jesus. Right now, right this moment, in Hong Kong, as protesters clash with police, pastors and Christians are situating themselves in the middle of the conflict with the hopes of mediating where it's most tense. And we'll see this more clearly when we ask the question, how do peacemakers do it? But to pursue peacemaking, let me warn you, to pursue peacemaking without a heart of love will quickly turn you into a cynic. And you'll get bitter. And you'll, you'll burn out. It has to come from this vision of love sustained and kept in us by the Holy Spirit. Peacemakers are motivated by love. Third thing is this. Peacemaking at times, at times, is passive. Peacemaking at times is passive. Now, overwhelmingly, this beatitude is about doing. Right? We've had enough of these sort of internal beatitudes. Now, let's do something, right? This beatitude is about doing, overwhelmingly. But if we consider the biblical picture about creating peace, what the whole Bible says about creating peace, we'll see that at times, creating peace, oftentimes, has to do with what we do not do and what we do not say. And that particular point of what we do not say is is over and over again a thrust of the scriptures. We can create division and conflict and all sorts of things with our tongues. The things we say, the careless words that we throw out there. In Psalm 34, 13 to 14, we see highlighted the important role of our speaking that it plays in preserving and keeping the peace. Psalm 34, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Some of us this morning need to seek peace just by shutting up, by not saying anything. Stop tearing people down. Sowing division and gossip and slander wherever you go. Passivity in peacemaking is a real thing. We need to be mindful of that. The fourth fourth thing is this. Peacemakers trust God. They trust God. One of the religious groups Jesus takes aim at in the Sermon on the Mount is the Pharisees, right? And we love to pick on the Pharisees. They're the religious people of the time. Jesus calls them hypocrites. Pharisees, they're terrible. Like, right, we, 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 we deal with that. But the other group of, of religious leaders that Jesus is taking aim at with the Sermon on the Mount is the zealots. The zealots. Now, the zealots, uh, they wanted peace the old-fashioned way, right? The, like, the, like the, the, the fun way. Like, let's have a good old revolution. Let's blow some things up. Let's, let's, let's start an army, cause an insurrection. Let's get peace that way. And we know, because one of Jesus' disciples was a zealot, that there was at least one zealot listening in on this Sermon on the Mount. And, and more likely, the crowd that had gathered around Jesus, who were pressing in to hear from Jesus, were, were, were definitely formed and shaped by the thinking and the ideology of the zealots, right? Who is Jesus to talk about peacemaking? Does he not know we are under Roman occupation? So you can, you can almost picture the zealots like nodding along with Jesus so far. Okay, pure in spirit. Okay, that's good. Fine. Merciful. Fine. Fine. Okay, e- even like, you know, poverty of your spirit. Like, I don't really get that, but fine, fine, fine. And then Jesus has to go and say what? Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And, and you can almost picture the zealots, like in their mind, wanting that revolution wanting to overthrow Roman chains and oppression, this sort of checking out, not for us. 
Maybe a few even walk away. The crowd gets a little bit thinner around Jesus. How can Jesus say, while his people, his people suffer, his people pay taxes to Caesar, how can Jesus say that the flourishing life is all about peacemaking? Peacemaking. Is Jesus deaf to the cries of his people? Is he blind to the humiliation they have endured? Let's ask a different question. Is he deaf to our cries? Is he blind to the suffering that happens in this world? I don't think so. I think Jesus, like all of these blessed are statements, has an eye towards God and the peace of God that will one day come in full. And he is trusting. He's trusting. Miroslav Volf was an author, a philosopher, theologian who witnessed uh, terrible atrocities in war. And one of the things he writes about in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, is that the only way for people who've experienced atrocity in war to proceed, right, to get on with their life, to even offer forgiveness and reconciliation, is by trusting that one day there is coming a, a day of judgment, a day of justice, when the guilty will pay for the crimes and atrocities they have committed. The peacemaker is trusting, is trusting that God is just and he will do what is right and good in his time. We trust that there is a day of greater peace coming. And now I think we're ready to tackle our third question. It's this, how do peacemakers do it? How do they do it? If the peacemaking Jesus is talking about is intended to change our hearts, If the peacemaking Jesus is talking about is costly, messy, motivated by love, requiring us both to hold our tongues and trust God in the face of terrible circumstances, how can peacemakers do it? How can they do it? Let me remind you of how we have defined a beatitude, how we've defined Matthew 5 verse 9. The beatitudes are grace-empowered wisdom invitations to flourish in Jesus' kingdom. Peacemaking is not something that we can conjure up in ourselves. Rather, it is an attribute of people who belong to Jesus. Jesus makes us peacemakers. He does this in us. How? Because Jesus himself is the Prince of Peace. In a text that is often read during the Christmas season, the Advent season, The prophet Isaiah speaks of a coming Messiah, Jesus, like this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, listen, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And contrary to the hopes of the zealots, the revolutionaries, how does the Prince of Peace establish his peace? A deep heart level, deal with our sin sort of peace. How does he do this when he arrives, when he comes? I'll give you a hint. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he told Peter to put away his sword. 
Jesus does not establish peace through violence or coercion. The Prince of Peace at unimaginable, messy cost. He stands between us and the Father. And the very next morning, he goes to the cross on our behalf. And Paul explains what's happening here in his letter to the church in Colossae. He writes this, For in him, that's Jesus, all fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, notice that, making peace by the blood of his cross. Peacemaking is made possible, firstly, because Jesus Christ has healed, is healing, and will heal every relationship broken in the fall. Every sphere tainted, every sphere broken, Jesus has come to bring wholeness, flourishing in those relationships. And so let me ask you this morning, do you need this peace? Do you need this peace? I don't know how you came uh, through the doors. I don't know what the drive was like on the way here. I don't know what your week was like or the month was like or your year has been. But do you need the peace this morning? Do you need this peace that only Jesus can offer? See, after receiving this peace, the dignity that this beatitude bestows upon each follower of Jesus, upon the church of Jesus, is that we have been tasked with bringing Jesus' peace to every sphere of our lives and the lives of those that we encounter. The second half of our beatitude reads like this. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, in some of your Bibles, it says children of God. Let me encourage you, read it sons of God. Not because I'm a chauvinist or a sexist, but because I think we should read it like that. Here's why. In the ancient world, to be called a son of someone was to say, really simply, that you exhibit the character or the likeness of your father or your mother. And so we know this in our current time. Uh, when my kid does something you know, lovely and kind and compassionate, we say that he is a son of his mother. He's a, son of, he's a son of Maisie. When my kid is a brat, like when he's angry and throwing a tantrum, like, well, that's Jake's son right there. Like, it's pretty obvious. The, the, the idea here in this beatitude is that somehow the Jesus follower is reflecting the very character and nature of their heavenly father. The very character and nature of God himself. It's crazy. See, here's what Jesus is, is driving at. When we stand between two warring family members, we are acting like our Heavenly Father. When we proclaim the good news of reconciliation, of peace with God, to people at war with God in their sin, we are acting like our Heavenly Father. When people stand between two bloodthirsty mobs looking for revenge, looking for destruction, when people stand between these bloodthirsty mobs pleading for de-escalation, pleading for reconciliation, we are acting, they are acting like our Heavenly Father. We're showing our family resemblance. Here's the challenge I want to leave us with as we respond. Whose character is on display right now in your peacemaking or your lack of peacemaking? Are you acting like a son of God? Are you acting like your heavenly father? Or are you showing yourself to bear the resemblance of someone or something else? Desperate for revenge. 
needing that pound of flesh. Well, son of Rambo, right? Son of John Wick. Or maybe son of your earthly father. Creating divisions with your words. Son of Wormtongue. And the character from Lord of the Rings who whispers poison into the ear of the king. Son of Wormtongue. Apathetic to this whole thing. Honestly, I'm just looking forward to brunch right now. Son of Cheetos, right? Son of Netflix. Honestly, it's none of my business. It's none of my business. Son of Western individualism. Who is discipling us when it comes to peacemaking? Are we acting like our Heavenly Father, or is someone else discipling us? Is someone else forming us? Is something else shaping us? Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus says, for they shall be called sons of God. Would you stand with me as we respond this morning? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.